Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. It's early evening on Friday the 4th of March, and of course, we must talk Ukraine. As everyone listening will know, Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, and we've all been transfixed by this horror ever since. I won't give a summary, except to say that some of the defining features have been ineffective Russian military tactics to begin, remarkable Ukrainian heroism, in particular from the country's President Zelensky, an equally remarkable response from NATO countries and others in imposing financial and economic sanctions on Russia, and in the past week, a reversion by Russia to its traditional warfighting methods with increasing use of artillery and other less precise weapons to grind Ukrainian resistance down and cause many casualties and wanton destruction as a result. Right now, the front page of the ABC News website has a nuclear reactor on fire, having been shelled by Russian forces. So it goes without saying that things can change very quickly and they can always get worse. All week, Alan, you and I have been discussing what we could actually say on this podcast that would potentially add value, given both that many, if not most of our listeners would be following events as closely as we are, and that, of course, trying to predict the future would be even more foolish than it normally is. So what we've agreed is to frame our discussion in this particular way. How have the events of the past nine days or so forced us to begin to revisit and potentially update our models of politics and international affairs? We'll take it in turn. So Alan, I'll invite you to begin. Thanks very much, Darren. The first thing to say is that when we talked about prospects for war in Ukraine a couple of episodes ago, I said that I didn't think Putin would go in because I couldn't see how Russia could gain more than it would lose by the action. But I added at the time, I'm being very honest here, that you should feel quite free to rubbish me if I got it wrong. So, Darren, here I stand, wrong. Not for the first time. I overweighted the impact of logic and analysis on the minds of a certain kind of decision maker, and I underweighted their appetite for risk. But hey, Russia, I still think that you would have been better off listening to me. So (laughs) we'll move on from this. Look, the biggest surprise of the past week for me has been the shift in Europe's, but most particularly Germany's position. Chancellor Scholz's announcement of an immediate and long-term increase in German defence expenditure, freezing of approval for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and a review of energy plus the provision of anti-tank weapons and stinger missiles to Ukraine, was genuinely stunning. Germany is obviously the country that matters most for the United States in its efforts to nag and pressure the European NATO partners into upping their defence expenditure. And the most surprising part is that it's come from the unexpected quarters of a newly installed coalition government led by the Social Democratic Party, which has a long pacifist wing to it, and which includes the Greens. It reflects such a sharp change in public sentiment in Germany that Anne Applebaum, whose book Twilight of Democracy, you might remember, was one of my picks on 
reading, listening and watching last year. Mm, mm. She describes this as, quote, a fundamental change in Germany's definition of itself in its understanding of its past. During the week, you and I have been talking about the role of the EU as, as well as NATO, Darren, and maybe even more than NATO, just because of the degree of difficulty in getting consensus across the group. The EU has stepped up during the crisis with sanctions and support for refugees. Ukrainian membership of the EU is not imminent, but it's a hell of a lot more prospective than it was before the invasion began. On the Ukraine side, like most people, I've been surprised by President Zelensky, whose political accomplishments in earlier periods of his administration were patchy at best. I don't share the general Australian disdain for politicians, and I think we need them to be good at their craft. But he was an outsider who knew precisely how to act as a war leader, both for his own people and to spread Ukraine's message to the broader international public. Now, when I say act as a war leader, I'm genuinely not being dismissive of his former profession as a TV comedy star. I'm talking about the same sort of vital leadership qualities that Ronald Reagan could summon as US president or Winston Churchill, for that matter. That is a skilled, professional understanding of the techniques necessary to rally and hold an audience. Mm, yeah. The speed of change in the European position has been quite remarkable and People will say, and they'll be right, there's a long way to go to translate these ambitions into defence capabilities. But the longer term implications beyond the immediate crisis are very significant. I mean, part of the impact uh, will be to take some of the burden for European defence off the United States, which will enable it to commit more resources to the Indo-Pacific theatre. So a genuine pivot to Asia becomes much easier in these circumstances, particularly after the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan as well. And this fact won't have been lost on Beijing. Longer term, an even more interesting prospect emerges, especially after Britain's departure from the EU, which is that Europe finally emerges as a fully-fledged strategic entity in its own right, a genuine pole in a multipolar world. Now, there's a long way to go there too, but it would have even greater implications for global geopolitics, especially if uh, President Macron gets his second term in France and continues to pursue his vision of a European standing army. Uh, what about you, Darren? Yeah, I'm equally surprised by the European response, Alan, and it's a reminder that war is the ultimate contingency because while I thought invasion was perhaps more likely than you did, I also thought wrongly, that Russia's overwhelming superiority would make it a quick war. And had Europe been presented with a fait accompli, sure, you'd have seen sanctions and a chill in relations, but probably efforts to return to business as usual as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's right, I think. Instead, the heroism of the Ukrainian resistance created enough time to fire up the imagination and the passions of the European people and their leaders. The result seems to be this permanent shift in the European mindset. And as you say, Alan, the emergence perhaps of Europe as a fully-fledged strategic entity. My related observation is that we've finally seen a red line of sorts for the international community in a very high-stakes situation, given Russia is the world's second nuclear power. 
it's not an ultimate red line where troops are committed and kinetic conflict is waged, but still a majority of the international community is condemning this quite clearly. And European states are doing things that were previously almost unimaginable. Sweden is sending military aid to Ukraine. Switzerland is joining into banking sanctions. Like, this is wild. And look, if Finland and Sweden join NATO, that will be another extraordinary milestone. And I think this is important, right, because it sends a message that this kind of territorial aggression is unacceptable and can have the political impact of uniting the world in opposition and making things that were previously impossible now possible. But look, having said that, we're now presented perhaps with the opposite problem. On the China Talk podcast, the historian Adam Tooze, who we've mentioned many times before on this podcast, said that he was seeing romanticism in Europe, excitement and thrill at this fundamental shift in Europe's strategic orientation and this uniting around opposition to Putin's aggression. And look, this even includes Hungary's Viktor Orban. But as a result, these romantic thoughts might be clouding judgment about what is ultimately going to happen in this conflict. For example, Russian artillery pounding Ukrainian cities into dust and inflicting horrific damage, ultimately winning the war quite a straightforward way. I think Tuz, as I understood him, is worrying that this romanticism might impede assessments about how to end this crisis and maybe even regarding how to manage some of the scariest possible contingencies like a nuclear confrontation. Yeah, it's important to bear that in mind. Well, let's turn now to your first observation about how the world might be changing. Yes, I can't help but begin in my own field of research, geoeconomics, because what has changed my model of the world is how substantially this war is being fought in a geoeconomic theatre, alongside the traditional battlefield in Ukraine itself, alongside the information and propaganda war being fought, and of course, alongside the cyber domain. Now, look, economic measures have always been part of warfare. For example, you've got the naval blockade of Germany in World War I, which used military force to restrict the supply of goods. But the logic of economic policies as instruments of strategic advantage, in normal times at least, is that they are slow, right? Traditional economic sanctions, banking sanctions, or even the informal sanctions that Australia has been experiencing in recent years. What distinguishes all of these is their gradual, mostly undramatic, but cumulative impact that builds pressure over time. And look, the exception to this rule is energy sanctions, but they've been excluded in this case by the NATO countries, as we'll discuss shortly. But otherwise, sanctions are passive, and that's the point, because they don't then cross a threshold that might provoke a military response. A good example from recent years is, of course, the sanctions on Iran, squeezing the economy slowly to force Tehran to the negotiating table on the nuclear weapons issue. But what we've seen over the past week is the exact opposite. Measures that are beginning to and could in future have such a rapid and devastating impact on Russia's economy that they arguably cross some escalation threshold. Look, you're not blowing things up, of course, but you are causing a level of deprivation with such speed that it really is a step change from before. What am I talking about? Well, the most astonishing is the sanctions that have hit Russia's central bank, preventing it from utilising its foreign exchange holdings that it owns but are held in foreign institutions in order to defend Russia's currency. 
We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth of assets that were accumulated precisely as a war chest in the, over the past 10 years, or at least the past five or six years, to be used against anticipated sanctions. And this war chest is now useless. Everyone meaningful is participating in these sanctions, including Switzerland, as I already mentioned. Second, you have the exclusion of, I think it's seven Russian banks from the SWIFT communications network, which will make it harder for them to make or receive international payments from most banks around the world. And then third, you have this array of export controls, which are cutting Russia's military industrial base out of the global economy. For example, Boeing and Airbus have been banned from exporting spare airplane parts and have blocked access to their training and repair manuals meaning Russia's aviation sector might be literally non-existent within a few weeks. And we could tell a similar stories about the resource extraction industry as another example. So why is all of this so surprising and why is it a big deal? Well, first, as I sort of foreshadowed from the outset, the geoeconomic theatre is now a parallel and truly meaningful theatre of combat. And look, lest one scoff that this is nothing like actual physical violence, Bear in mind that the speed and impact of these sanctions is the West trying to almost synchronize its geoeconomic timetable with its warfighting timetable. The goal here seems to be to compel Russia to stop its invasion. And so these costs need to be imposed fast enough that they might affect battlefield decisions before the invasion and occupation is complete. But that means the possibility that these measures will be part of some escalation ladder. I think of the extent to which Pearl Harbor happened because the US blocked oil exports to Japan. And now I think about Putin putting his nuclear forces on high alert last weekend after these central banking sanctions were announced. If these sanctions do indeed devastate the Russian economy, will this be seen as a step up the escalation ladder? Not quite the same as joining the physical war itself, but look, how much short of it will it be? Second, the target of these sanctions is not some peripheral economy like Iran or North Korea, but a member of the G20, a major global economy. And it's impossible to know yet the flow and effects, what's going to happen on the other side of these transactions that are being stopped. Russians can't use Visa and MasterCard right now. And I read that the Russian market constitutes about 4% of MasterCard's business, which is not a small amount. Adam Tooze wrote this week about the interaction of these sanctions with the challenge faced by the American government in taming inflation. But beyond that, it really is crossing the cliched Rubicon in terms of signaling to the world that the basic infrastructure of global finance can and will be weaponized towards geopolitical ends. The central banking sanctions, again, in particular, make that unambiguously clear. Will that, over the long term, undermine confidence in the system at the margins and hasten the constructions of alternatives? Third, another interesting facet has been the overcompliance of Western companies in scaling back business with Russia, even when they haven't been required to, as a sort of de-risking strategy. The biggest examples have been BP, Shell and Exxon, seeking to offload Russian assets and being willing to absorb huge losses in doing so. The shipping company, Marisk, has suspended container shipping from Russia. And all of these actions complicate attempts at balancing the need to impose costs on Putin and to harm the warfighting machine, but without hurting the Russian people themselves too much. Look, as we know, oil and gas exports have been explicitly exempted from the sanctions. 
because of the damage this would do both to Europe and to the Russian economies, and perhaps because it could trigger a retaliation from Putin. But how do you control the independent actions of companies reasonably responding to an unpredictable business environment and the extra damage that might cause? Moreover, while it's obvious you want to target Putin and his inner circle and Russia's war machine, it's far from certain that targeting or harming the Russian people is going to generate the right kind of political pressure to have the needed impact to cause Russia to pull back. And then finally, the question is, how does this, all of this end? The other side of coercion is reassurance, the promise that the punishment will stop if the offending actions are withdrawn. We know sanctions are hard to unwind at the best of times, so it's hard to see what the credible promise is that Europe and the US could make to unwind all this if, and it's still a big if, Putin were to back down. I do wonder whether these sanctions are going to be in place for a long time, perhaps for as long as Putin is in office. And I ask myself whether we had to dial these sanctions all the way up to 11 straight away or whether a slower ramping up would have been preferred. But of course, that then brings us full circle to my first point about synchronizing the military and economic timeframes. Final point, look, I'm not trying to make the case for or against these measures. I don't know if they're the right thing to do, but as someone who studies these for a living, it is truly surprising. Oh, look, uh, thanks, Darren. That was a really great summary. I'm with you in your surprise at the comprehensive nature of the response and the speed with which it was implemented. But we're already hearing discomfort in some circles about what all this means. When you said that the central bank sanctions are signalling to the world that the basic infrastructure of global finance can and will be weaponised to geopolitical ends, and then you asked whether that will undermine confidence in the system at the margins or hasten the construction of alternatives, you're really talking about a tremendously big disconnect in the international order. If under the rules-based order, which we promote and validate, national funds from G20 countries can essentially be expropriated because of what is seen in Washington as a serious breach of international law, what's the response likely to be, not only from Beijing, but from other large developing countries like um, India or, or, or Saudi Arabia? And where does this end? What thought have you given to those questions? It seems further confirmation of the inherent risks of interdependence and will probably accelerate decoupling. In actual fact, earlier today, I was working on tutorial discussion questions for my class, Geoeconomics and National Security, for next week. And I'm going to ask the students to respond to a quote from Robert Cohan and Joseph Nye uh, in a book they wrote in 1977 called Power and Interdependence. And reflecting on that argument 10 years later, they wrote, quote, from the foreign policy standpoint, the problem facing individual governments is how to benefit from international exchange while maintaining as much autonomy as possible, end quote. And that, by the way, Darren, is why all your students should listen to this podcast. <laughs> Advance notice of the questions they'll be asked. And possibly the answers. Yes, indeed. Let's see if they do. Look, for most countries, and I would include Saudi Arabia and India in this basket, the costs of achieving autonomy are probably too great. And the benefits from international exchange, to use that phrasing, will also remain too attractive despite the risks revealed by the past week's events. 
especially since decoupling from one financial system might just simply mean creating vulnerability within a new alternative system. And look, maybe it's true that as long as you don't invade and seek to occupy a sovereign country that doesn't pose a legitimate and immediate threat to you, such extreme financial weapons might not be used against you. The exception here is, of course, China, which does potentially have the capacity for much greater autonomy. The internationalization of the renminbi has been delayed over the past decade or two because of other interests in maintaining controls over capital flows in and out of the country. So I do wonder if at the margins, these events could change Beijing's calculus there. I read a blog post today by a man named Patrick McKenzie, who is a software engineer at the startup payments company Stripe. And he wrote boldly, that what seems to be more and more true is that banks and other financial entities are from time to time going to be expected to act as the policy arms for their governments. And to quote McKenzie talking about SWIFT in particular, quote, of course SWIFT is a policy arm. Of course it answers to the EU. Of course it can be directed against disfavored individuals and organizations, including governments, including in an indiscriminate manner. Of course, this has happened before. Of course, all parties knew it could happen again, end quote. But having said all that, this is also true for Beijing's control over state-owned and private companies, and arguably even more so. But from Beijing's perspective, Western complaints about the merging of the state and the market are going to appear even more hypocritical since Western governments are happy to deputize private companies and organizations when it suits their policy aims, but not China when it does likewise. Of course, the Western response is going to be to argue the legitimacy of these aims over what they would say is the mercantilist, nationalist, industrial policy of Beijing. But look, the two sides are not going to agree on this and look, and decoupling is likely to continue. Anyway, Alan, what's next on your list? The United States is next. I said this last time, and it's been reinforced by everything I've seen since, the skill with which the Biden administration has managed the crisis has really been remarkable. NATO is more unified than it has been in decades. The EU has been energized. And this has come about not because of hectoring or lecturing from Washington, but because of nonstop, multi-level, highly effective diplomacy, which has greatly enhanced America's standing. Intelligence professionals I know have been surprised by the volume and classification of intelligence which has been fed into the public domain in order to prepare the ground for the invasion, to rob Putin of the element of surprise, and at the end, to play with his head, I suspect. Washington and Kyiv between them have won the information wars hands down. We don't know, at least I don't, though some of our listeners might, what's going on behind the scenes. There seems no doubt that the $3 billion of military aid the US has given Ukraine in recent years, as well as the training it's provided, has paid dividends on the battlefield and more support is coming. And I'm sure there's a lot going on in the area of cyber defence and possibly cyber attack in which Washington is a key player. But this does bring me back to a point I've made before about the United States. So I guess this is where my model hasn't changed. And that point is that the US has become a variable rather than a constant in international policy. 
If this invasion had happened during the transition between any two, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, none of us would have been in any doubt that the directions of American strategy would have continued. But just think about the very real possibility that Donald Trump had beaten Joe Biden last time. Indeed, he claims that he did. Would the crisis have unrolled in the same way? I very much doubt it. Most of the Republicans have lined up behind Ukraine and have criticised Biden for not doing more. But if in three years' time we've got Trump or a Trump surrogate back in the White House, the dynamics of the transatlantic relationship, Putin's risk calculations, assuming he's still there, and the confidence of the Ukrainians will all be very different. A point well taken, Alan. Even if we are updating our models, the outcomes those models yield themselves may rest on assumptions such as the occupant of the White House. I agree, the Biden team has handled itself very well. We're not going to talk about war outcomes today, but it seems eminently possible that even when the fighting sort of comes to an end in Ukraine, the NATO countries could well enter into a type of Cold War with Russia, at least as long as Putin remains in office. In that case, it will be explicitly in Putin's interest that Trump or someone like him wins in 2024, which might have implications for interference in the election and so forth. Yeah. On the other hand, Trump's refusal to condemn Putin might, at the margins at least, finally become a political liability for him. On the other hand, again, the macroeconomic consequences of this war and the sanctions might accelerate the US's inflationary spiral which could send Biden to defeat if he runs again. So you've got contingency upon contingency. All the way down. Thanks, Darren. What do you have next? Yeah, look, I guess I'm not sure I'm updating my model yet here in this issue, but I'm watching the response of other countries in our region very closely, starting with China, but also India and the ASEAN countries in particular. Beijing is in a very difficult situation. It's easy to be against things to highlight the numerous mistakes that the United States has made over the years. And it's also pretty easy to be for things if they are characterised in vague, unobjectionable terms. Much of China's positive vision for a preferred world order is basically motherhood statements like win-win and the community of common destiny. And even when China's policy has faced trade-offs, it's been pretty straightforward, I think, for Beijing to make choices. You take a hard line on your core interests and otherwise don't stick your neck out. But Russia's invasion does not give Xi Jinping that luxury. As we all know, Xi met with Putin at the commencement of the Winter Olympics and the two declared a friendship with no limits. Of course, very quickly, it's shown it's turned out that there are limits because foreign policy is rife with trade-offs. It's one thing to oppose US hegemony it's another to support a blatant and horrifically violent invasion of sovereignty, especially given that non-interference and sovereign integrity are supposedly core interests of China. Moreover, Moscow's willingness to recognise the independence of separatist territories in Ukraine must be deeply troubling for Beijing. We've seen Chinese officials and state media try to walk the line. They've refused to call the operation an invasion, They've abstained from criticising Russia and United Nations votes. But it's worth remembering or emphasising that 141 of the 193 UN member states condemned Russia at a UN General Assembly vote this week. But China wasn't one of them. We know China wants to lead, but leadership sometimes involves choices with no good options. 
And that's exactly what Xi Jinping is confronting now, especially or more so if Moscow seeks greater material support from Beijing in the weeks ahead. If we turn to India and the ASEAN countries, I think they face a milder but no less stark version of this trade-off. For India, Russia remains its major military supplier, though that dependence is slowly declining. And India generally has long sought to maintain a balance between its relations with the West and everyone else and does not like to criticise partners directly. My guess is that New Delhi took the least costly choice here from a short-term perspective. It's not really providing material support to Russia and it won't likely suffer negative repercussions from its Western partners for its relative silence here. And look, it's worth acknowledging that the Indian government statements have been implicitly critical of the invasion. So it's clear that they aren't happy with things. But the country is still in an uncomfortable position. And at some point, I think the more expedient short-term solution becomes a longer-term liability. I saw a piece today, though, that suggested that the Indians might have cancelled an order of Russian jets. And we have the overnight quad meeting, which I'm sure we'll come to a bit later. So perhaps there could be some movement there. And look, very quickly, a similar dynamic is true for ASEAN nations, who other than Singapore, have been reluctant to take sides. This is consistent with a long-standing principle of neutrality, but as a result, limits their ability to have external influence. As Hong Lutu Oaspi wrote for Nikkei Asia, ASEAN, quote, risks becoming perpetually neutralised in the face of a rapidly changing world order, end quote. Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not sure ASEAN sees that as a risk, as much as a mutual self-defence arrangement necessary to preserve their independence in a rapidly changing world and essential if they're to stick together, which they would much rather do than fragment. I think recent events will give them more incentive to adhere with even greater determination to their neutrality and refusal to join a balancing coalition against China, but I may be wrong. Well, even if that worked, it would only work until their own security interests are directly at stake. Anyway, Alan, let's turn for home now and finish with a discussion of the implications for Australia. What's your thinking here? Uh, the Prime Minister's due to speak on Monday at the Lowy Institute. So by the time some of our listeners are hearing this, there may well have been further decisions announced about Australia's um, attitude and involvement. So let me talk in a more general way about the implications for Australia. Uh, on the general question of the war, Australia remains one of the chorus of supporting actors. That's no bad thing. We can continue to provide military support, offer civilian relief, take in refugees add our voice as persuasively as we can to the condemnation of Russia's actions and uh, support for Ukraine. And I think we've done all, all that uh, very well. The Morrison government has ad additionally been trying to frame this crisis as part of a broader global struggle, which it characterises as one between democracies and autocracies, for which read, above all, China. And that fits, fits in with the positioning of a response to China as the central organising principle of the government's foreign policy. The virtual quad meeting called to address the conflict and its implications was presumably in part an effort to keep India up to scratch. It was also a sign from Biden that events in Europe um, were not distracting the US from this part of the world. 
the PM has certainly shown signs of discomfort over India's refusal to condemn the Putin invasion outright. Uh, I was reading the transcripts uh, of um, his interview with a broadcaster in, in Perth about India's position, and he said, and I quote in full, uh, and look, and look, I think we've got to work patiently with our with our partners who work for the same objectives as we do in the Indo-Pacific, and that's what we'll do. And uh, so I don't draw an equivalence between India and China whatsoever, end quote. Nor with Vietnam or Indonesia, I guess. Both of them are ambivalent too. Indeed, yeah. So all of this is just a reminder that international politics are complicated and we live in a region full of countries with very different histories and interests that can diverge from ours on particular issues. One undoubted consequence of the crisis, especially if our speculation that it will lead over time to a stronger and maybe more independent European voice in international security is correct, is that it reinforces Australia's need to develop a deeper relationship with and a deeper understanding of Europe. Britain's departure from the EU means that it's no longer an especially useful interlocutor for us in Brussels or elsewhere on the continent. And the messy consequences of the Morrison government's decision to pull out of the French submarine project increase our difficulties with Paris and strengthen the need for us to build up other partnerships. One final matter, it's worth speculating about one of the substantial achievements of Australian foreign policy this century, which was our support for the creation of the G20 group of major economies after the global financial crisis. Because more than any other relationship, more than APEC or the Quad or Five Eyes or Alcmen, this gives us a seat at the global high table. But you have to think that if the Ukraine crisis goes on for long, the relationships with Russia will begin to make the G20 nearly unworkable. And where would that leave Australia? Certainly less well-placed to expand our view beyond the Indo-Pacific and the Anglosphere. So maybe it's time for another Malcolm Fraser-like assault on the G7. Um, look, a final, final point. Uh, I also want to take issue with the large number of letter writers and commentators and no doubt Twitter activists who are calling for the expulsion of the Russian ambassador as a further sanction and signal of our opposition to the invasion. This seems like an easy response, and it would be an easy response, although it would be immediately followed by the expulsion of the Australian ambassador from Moscow. Embassies are not a decorative embellishment of a relationship. They don't signify our approval of the country whose flag they fly. They're a core form of communication in a crisis, even when those communications are couched in the toughest of language. So the idea that we should shut down communications channels at the very point they're needed most seems to me to be counterproductive and self-defeating. You need to be very careful about meaningless symbolism in the foreign policy business. Very well said, Alan. On the Quad, Arzan Tarapore pointed out on Twitter today that the Quad's goal is not to change national interests, but to coordinate action. And he saw the overnight summit as a success because of the common ground found despite divergent interests. I don't doubt Morrison and Biden are probably sick of being asked about India, 
My point would be that if we're going to change New Delhi's mind, the Quad as a multilateral forum of trusted partners may be a very effective mechanism to do so. And on China, I obviously see why the government is linking this back to China, especially as we discussed last episode in the context of an upcoming election. But I cannot help but express the wish that it was framed in a less hostile and more positive-leaning way. China can and should play a central role in resolving the crisis. And as a result, you would hope actually saving the lives and livelihoods of many Ukrainian people. Personally, I want China to exercise leadership here to show that it can help lead 141 UN members who have condemned this action and indeed bring more into the tent. So I wish our message was just a bit more positive in calling for Beijing's leadership rather than hostile criticism. But in saying that, I acknowledge I'm not living in the real world. Anyway, Alan, let's finish off with reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? I've been reading Paul Kelly's new Lowy Institute Penguin publication, Morrison's Mission, which is a study of foreign policy as it's developed under the Morrison government. It's included long interviews with the Prime Minister himself. Paul writes magisterial histories and he likes overarching narratives. And I personally think there's a bit more of that here than is justified, but it is essential reading for anyone interested in Australian foreign policy. What about you? Thanks, Alan. For those who are interested in the geoeconomic dimension, if you only listen or read one thing, I would point you to Adam Tooze's interview on The Ezra Klein Show, which is now, of course, hosted by The New York Times from earlier this week. It's over an hour long. They recorded the first episode the previous Friday before all these sanctions came in and then had to get back into the studio and, and record an addendum on the Monday. And so it really is a one-stop shop for all of the major geoeconomic issues and their geopolitical implications. Look, I've referred to as many times today. I've been relying on his Twitter feed, on his chart book newsletter and on his podcast appearances. I'm sure I probably outright appropriated some of his ideas on today's podcast. So, But that one podcast is really a great one-stop shop if you're interested in these issues. And on that note, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for audio editing today. And of course, thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.